in that ministry. Uh, they are together. I think both of them are together this morning. He's brought his wife with him as well. They have four children, uh, two of which, two of whom are missionaries. I think you have four grandchildren, one on the way, I understand, and one on the way. And uh, he's also an author of several books. I remember many years ago uh, reading one of them, and I think the title of it was The Battle for Your Mind or Win the Battle for Your Mind, one of those titles, I believe, which was a, a very good book. Uh, in addition to that, he comes from a heritage of of uh, ministers. When I was in college in Tennessee, his father, actually, Layman Strauss. Do any of you know Layman Strauss? Ever heard him speak? Uh, he was a man that was very active when I was in college and speaking at uh, campuses. In fact, I noticed if you're going to Word of Life and are going to be a part of their ministry this summer, I believe Layman Strauss is speaking there this summer. I saw his name on there several times. And so he comes from a great heritage of ministers as well. Let's welcome, in a Master's College way, Dr. Richard Strauss this morning. can't see you. Are you out there? Yeah. Actually, I think Richard Strauss is going to be a word of life this summer, too, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, some of you going to be working at Word of Life this summer? Is that what I understand? Well, we'll see you there, the Lord willing. It's good to be with you folks. Why, you don't have any lack of great music, do you? That's fantastic. Appreciate these people who have ministered to us so effectively this morning. And I'm glad for the opportunity to be here. I'm here, I believe, because the Lord wants me to be here. And I would imagine you're here because the Lord wants you to be here. So let's make the best use of our time together. I was talking to my wife, Mary, a few days ago. She said, would you have any thoughts about uh, what maybe I should share at uh, Master's College on Monday? She said, well, in view of your situation, knowing that you may not have another opportunity to address these kids, what would you want to say to college students? I thought that was a good question. Maybe I ought to explain the situation she's talking about. I have a disease called multiple myeloma, which is cancer of the bone marrow. And the doctors say it's not curable. And they tell me that life expectancy is averaging three to four years from diagnosis. And I was diagnosed two and a half years ago. So only the Lord knows whether I'll ever get another opportunity to speak at Master's College or not. We know that God can heal. I know that if he chooses, he can perform a miracle in my life. Medical science may discover a cure before I check out and see Jesus. But uh, I got to thinking, what would I want to share? I'll be 59 years old next month. Went to a Christian college myself. Grew up in a Christian home. What would I want to share with a group of college students if I never had an opportunity to talk to them again? I think probably the most important thing would be to invest your life doing what Majesty sang in their first song. Growing more like Jesus. Getting to know Him better. Becoming more like Him. But there was one particular thing about Christ-likeness that came to my mind that I really want to share with you. Jesus was real. He was transparent. He was honest. He was marked by integrity. He was open. It wasn't like the Pharisees who were the blue ribbon hypocrites of all time. He had some very scathing denunciation for the Pharisees because of their hypocrisy. But Jesus was real. I read somewhere where in the French Riviera, where I've never been, 
It's a status symbol to have a balcony on your apartment. And if you don't have one, some people will paint one on just because it looks good to have a balcony. They even went so far in on occasion as to paint uh, uh, drying laundry on a clothesline to make it look like they really had a balcony. A few years ago, I was speaking at Moody Founders Conference, and Mary and I went out for a walk one afternoon in downtown Chicago. And I saw this huge apartment building up ahead. And as we got closer, we could see these bay windows, beautiful bay windows, all over the, the apartment. And the closer we got, the more I realized they were painted on, shadows and all, to make them look real. I thought that was really strange. We turned the corner, and I saw this beautiful courthouse building with these great white columns and marble steps leading up to a huge, massive arched doorway. And as I got closer to the building, I realized the whole thing was painted on, the, on a solid brick wall, just painted on there to kind of make it look good. It wasn't a courthouse at all. It was all phony. You know, I'm afraid that some of us as Christians do something very similar to that. We paint on a facade of spirituality complete with all the trappings. We have a, you know, a, a touch of unselfishness and a pinch of humility and maybe pious smile and throw in a few praise the Lord's here and there and make it look good and sound good, you know, and give it a touch of reality. It, and, and sometimes it's all designed to cover up what really is a spiritual barrenness and sterility that isn't very attractive at all. It's called hypocrisy. Somebody defined a hypocrite as, a, as, a, as someone who complains that there's too much sex and violence on his, on his VCR. I, I don't know whether that's a good definition or not. But kind of phony, you know. It's one of those things the Lord would like us to weed out of our lives. Romans 12 Paul says, let your love be without hypocrisy. James 3, the wisdom that's from above is without hypocrisy. You know, the better we understand it, maybe the easier it will be to detect it and deal with it in our lives. I'm of the opinion that one of the easiest places to play the hypocrite is at a Christian college. Maybe you don't agree with that, but I, I found it so. I think I did my share of it when I was at a Christian college. You know, you're expected to be spiritual in a framework like this, in an atmosphere like this. You're expected to have a walk with God and, and really love the Lord Jesus. And if, if those things are missing in your life, you know, we have a tendency to maybe fake them so that we don't look too bad among our friends and faculty. You know, it's easier to detect hypocrisy in other people's lives than it is in our own. But seeing it in them may help us recognize it in ourselves and then deal with it. So I thought a good thing to do this morning would be to, to look at a hypocrite in the Bible. Because I need to weed this, any tendency toward this phoniness out of my own life. And I would sense that maybe you need to do that too. And the guy that came to my mind was King Saul, one of the Bible's prized hypocrites. And one situation in his life that exemplified his hypocrisy, probably more than any other, is found in 1 Samuel chapter 15. So I have your Bible with you this morning. I'd invite you to open it, please, to 1 Samuel 15. 
Let's see the, the uh, symptoms of Saul's hypocrisy and then use that to, to learn to detect it in our own lives so we can deal with it and be real. So our lives can bring glory to the Lord Jesus who saved us. And we can be used of him in an effective way as long as God gives us life and breath. The first indication of his hypocrisy was when he, he chose the commands he wanted to obey. The story began when God commanded Saul through the prophet Samuel to destroy the Amalekites, all of them, and everything associated with them. See, the Amalekites were a, a warlike tribe that, who ambushed the Israelites when they left Egypt, you remember. They tried to destroy them. They did it again several times in the book of Judges, tried to eliminate the people of Israel. And given another chance, they would probably try to do it again. As a matter of fact, one of them who survived did try it 550 years later. Haman, in the book of Esther, who tried to exterminate the Jews, was an Amalekite. They threatened to annihilate the line through which the world's Savior would one day come. The command was clear. God said to Saul, eliminate all of them. But Saul thought he had a better idea. Why not keep at least the king alive? For a while, they could put him on display and uh, that would strengthen the people's faith in God, wouldn't it? And what harm would there be in, in sparing just some of the spoils of battle? I mean, why waste all that good food? Besides, sheep and oxen can't hurt anybody, can they? They could use some of them to sacrifice to the Lord. Surely he would be pleased with that. So I read in 1 Samuel 15 and verse 9. So, Paul, so Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. Now, you don't have to think very long to figure out why Saul kept the king alive for a while. He could put him on public display, you see, and that would strengthen, and that would uh, strengthen his image with the people. It was pride that made him do that. I mean, he was losing, losing influence with his people. He was, he was, his kingship and, and his hold, hold on the nation was beginning to deteriorate, and putting a defeated king on display would make him look good. Bolster his sagging popularity. In what, pe what, what a hypocrite looks like is really the important thing. Not what's going on inside him, not what he's really like, not what he really does, but what he looks like. Appearance, that's what counts. What people see, not what's really happening. Sam Levinson told a story of a driver who put a note under a windshield wiper of a parked car. It read, I've just smashed into your car. The people who saw the accident are watching me. They think I'm writing down my name and address. I'm not. Good luck. Wanted to look good. As long as it looks okay, that's all that counts, you see. There isn't much question about Saul using this victory for prideful political purposes. Look at verse 12. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying... Saul went to Carmel, and indeed, he set up a monument for himself. And he's gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Set up a monument? A monument commemorating this victory. But it wasn't 
giving glory to God for the victory. It was a monument, it says there, to himself. Pride. That was one of the reasons Saul chose what he would obey and what he wouldn't obey. There was selfishness, too. I think all the people were guilty of that. I mean, those animals would enhance their wealth. Wealth was measured in terms of animals primarily in that day. And it would make life easier for them. And the fact that they destroyed all the worthless animals and kept the good ones was probably not to sacrifice to God like they claim, but because they wanted to improve the quality of their flocks and their herds. But by letting them do it, Saul again ingratiated himself with the people. Hypocritical people choose which parts of God's word they're going to obey and which parts they're going to ignore. That's what, that's what the Pharisees did. Remember what Jesus said to them? Over in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, he said. You pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. They pick and choose what they're going to obey. And they usually choose what makes life more pleasant for them, what they want to do. Like the guy who was complaining to his friend that uh, his family spent too much time watching TV. His children watched cartoons instead of doing their homework. And his wife preferred soap operas to housework. He had a solution to the problem. As soon as basketball season is over, he says, I'm going to pull the plug on that thing. Because that's what he wanted to do. We do what we want to do. Pride and selfishness are prime factors in what we decide we're going to obey and what we're not going to obey. If it's to our benefit to be kind to other people, we'll show kindness to them. But if that guy cuts us off on the freeway or that gal's rude to us in the checkout line, we'll give him a piece of our mind. Show them how sarcastic we can be. We, we decide when we're going to obey and when we're going to disobey. Or we can pray flowery prayers in, in public sometimes and yet spend very little time alone with God. Because that's what makes us look good. Or we choose our friends on the basis of what they're going to do for us rather than what we can contribute to their lives. Or we say we want to do the will of God. We want to go where God wants us to go and do what God wants us to do. Foreign missions? Oh, I could never give my life to that. I'm not going to waste my life tucked away in some obscure corner of the earth. Pride and selfishness are often the things that determine what we decide we'll obey and what we won't obey. You know, what is especially interesting is that hypocrites will usually tell us about their obedience, but very seldom ever acknowledge the struggles they're having so that someone can pray for them and hold them accountable. They don't talk about those things. Look what happened when Samuel arrived in the camp in Gilgal in verse 13. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of God. Isn't that wonderful? I did what God told me to do. He didn't do what God told him to do at all. So when we work godly people, we like to tell them how wonderful we are and all the good things we've done. Let me tell you what a wonderful quiet time I had this morning. Let me tell you what God taught me from the Word today. Let me tell you about the people I witnessed to this afternoon. But I'm not going to tell you what a struggle I had keeping my mind on my work today and, and that I was really goofing off on the job or 
very seldom hear anybody say, let me tell you how I lost my temper today or how I really struggled with lust today or how I gossip about the girls down the hall today. Or Saul's hypocrisy is hanging out all over the place here. And that sets the stage for the second major display. Not only did he choose which commands he wanted to obey, but he rationalized his disobedience. Now, Samuel's no dummy. If Saul has obeyed the Lord and destroyed all the Malachites and everything that they own, why does the Israelite camp sound like old MacDonald's farm? Verse 14. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and this lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul has a reasonable explanation. Hypocrites usually do. Verse 15. And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites. They had brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. It's a very interesting verse. If you want to play the hypocrite, camp on this verse, because there's lots of good ideas to, to cover up your hypocrisy here. First of all, it wasn't his fault, did you notice? They have brought them. The people spared the best. The people made me do it. That cop-out started all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Adam said, the woman you gave me, she's the one who gave me the fruit to eat. So when God turned to the woman, she said, the devil made me do it. it wasn't my fault. He made me do it. People have been trying to fake God out with that one ever since. Like the converted drunkard who fell back into his old ways and, and he prayed, Lord, O oh Lord, thou knowest the weakness of the flesh and the power of the tempter. His friend said, Why don't you say, Lord, I got I got drunk again? You know, just just say it. We don't like to just say it. We don't like to acknowledge our sin, do we? Yeah, yeah, we, we got involved sexually together. Yeah, but it wasn't my fault. You should have seen how she was dressed, you know. It's her fault. Well, yeah, I, yeah, I did cheat on that exam. Uh, but, you know, if these, if these teachers wouldn't make these exams so difficult, I wouldn't have to do things like this, you know. Besides, I, don't, I won't need to know all that stuff anyway in, in my life to come, you know. Who cares? Well, yeah, well, maybe I did lose my cool with my roommate, you know. But if you had to live with a slob like that, you'd lose your cool too, you know. It's not my fault. It's always somebody else's fault. Somebody else made me do it. Why not just say, Lord, I'm responsible for my sin and I want to turn from it by your grace and your power. If I've done something wrong, somebody else has to be to blame. That's the typical hypocrite's ploy. But there's more in verse 15. Notice he says, For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. That's, that's really interesting to me. Why did he not say the Lord, our God, or my God? The Lord, your God? Hypocrites seldom have an intimate, an intimate personal relationship with the Lord. They talk about it because they want to appear as though they do, but sometimes they give themselves away, as Saul did. But also significant is the fact that he claims to have disobeyed for a good purpose. 
Did you notice that? They're to, to sacrifice to the Lord. He repeats that down in verse 21. But the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. We did it for a good purpose, Samuel. You can't fault us for disobeying the Lord. We did it for His own good. Well, that's the ultimate excuse, isn't it, for... Uh, for sin. We did it for God's good. A couple of years ago in the financial district of San Francisco on Earth Day, protesters in the name of cleaning up the environment paraded under banners reading, You're buying the stocks that are ruining Mother Earth. The chanting marchers smashed glass, threw eggs, spray painted buildings, overturned newspaper racks, hurled potted plants to the sidewalk. And what were they painting on the walls? Stop pollution. It's the same idea, you see. Uh, we did it for, for the good of others, the Lord or others, whichever. Yeah, I know we got in you know, past curfew, but uh, you know, we, I was having such a wonderful prayer time with my date that we just lost uh, track of the time. <laughs> I know I, I didn't get the assignment done, you know, but uh, the, the body needs some recreation, doesn't it? You know. Yeah, I was late to class, you know, but, but I had this friend with a problem and I really wanted to help counsel him with his problem, you know. It's, Samuel's answer to this is one of the most memorable statements in the Bible. It's in verse 22. Then Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. None of our religious exercises mean anything to God if our hearts are not right with Him. That's where it begins, in the heart. If our stubborn wills are not yielded to His will. And I'm afraid there are many Christians who have never settled that issue in Romans 12, 1 and 2, and yielded their wills, presented their bodies a living sacrifice. See, God's not interested in the outward religious trappings. He painted on balconies and bay windows. He wants to see total obedience in every area of our lives. And that can only come from a heart that is right with Him. A will that is fully surrendered to His will. And to go through the forms for show when there are major areas of self-will in our lives is hypocrisy. And not only does it make our spiritual life empty and barren, right here and now, but it really eliminates any effectiveness in our service for Jesus Christ. Oh, well, we can get it straightened out now. We can confess it to God and deal with it and turn our lives over to Him and have an effective ministry. I know because there's been enough hypocrisy in my own life that I know God can use a person once He gets it straightened out. But Saul is disqualified from ministry because of this. His hypocrisy earns him a severe rebuke from God. Verse 23, the end of the verse. 
Samuel says to him, Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Wow. Pretty, pretty harsh. And that only brings out a, the third demonstration of hypocrisy. Not only does he choose the commands he wants to obey and rationalize his disobedience, but he repents to get his own way. Saul's answer sounds good at first. Verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. Sounds like repentance. But even in his repentance, there's buck passing. Look at the rest of the verse. Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. As if it really was the people's fault, not his. They put the pressure on him. It's rather half-hearted repentance, isn't it? To say the least. And it exposes his hypocritical heart. He feared the people more than he feared the Lord. That's hypocrisy. But what follows is even more distressing. Verse 25. Now therefore, he says to Samuel, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. It's important for him that Samuel goes in to worship with him. That's the issue, that Samuel's with him. He, he's more interested in Samuel's approval than in God's approval. And that's, that's typical of the hypocritical heart. He wants Samuel to stay and worship God with him, but it becomes obvious that his motive is not to honor the Lord so much as to make a good show before the people. He only cares what people think, you see. When Samuel refuses and turns to leave, Saul's so upset, he grabs him, and when he grabs him, he tears his robe. And Samuel uses that as an object lesson. Verse 28, Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Now he's really getting desperate. Verse 30, Then he said, Ah, I have sinned. Does that sound like sincere repentance to you? Well, then read on. Yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. Wow. His repentance is designed to persuade Samuel to stay and worship with him. So the people will not know that God has rejected him from being king. He doesn't want them to know that. And he's more concerned about what they think than what God thinks. That's typical of hypocrites in the way they think. Outwardly it sounds like repentance, but it's half-hearted and insincere and designed primarily to get his own way. To have his own way. He's going to have it his way. I read a quaint little story about a southern soldier who was captured by the Yankees during the Civil War. And he kept saying to his captors, you know, if there had been a few more of us rebels, we'd have whipped you, the Yankees. And he kept saying it over and over again, and they got so sick of hearing it, they decided they are going to take him to General Grant, finally, and let, let the general himself deal with him. And so um, General Grant said to him, See that flag? I'll give you one minute to pledge allegiance to it, or you're going to be shot. And immediately the man took an oath of allegiance to the flag. 
And as he turned and walked away, he turned around and said, Hey, General, you know, if there'd been a few more of them rebels, they'd have wiped out us Yankees. Yeah. He had it his way. The right words, but a heart unchanged. And we do it too. Maybe, maybe you've done it at home. You know, I'm, I'm sorry, Mom. I, I mean, to, didn't mean to talk to you that way. I'll, I'll never do it again. Please don't tell Dad what I said, all right? Well, yeah, I did uh, let my friend punch my time clock that one time when I left work early. But, but please don't tell the boss.